everybody. Welcome to This Week in Innovation. On today's show, Brendan Kumar Asami, founder and president of mastertalk.ca, joined Brian and I for discussion on how to master the art of pitching and public speaking. He's got a YouTube channel, Master Your Talk, with a ton of content, which I highly recommend. We talk about some strategies founders, retailers, analysts, and students can use to improve your communication skills. And of course, we talk about some of the classic, uh, classic mistakes speakers make, including me falling off a stage. Give it a listen and let us know what you think. Hey, Brian, how you doing today? Doing great, Jeff. Hey, Brian, I am really excited. I'm the brand new owner of the latest iPhone. Well, actually, I'm not an owner of the iPhone. I am in the process of waiting for my iPhone. Guess how long it takes right now, Brian, to get a new iPhone? Quite long. Yeah. Month and a half. Month yeah, and a half. Yeah. I'm actually waiting for the Tesla Cybertruck, so I'm on the same queue as you. So a different longer queue. Yeah, I think yours might be longer, but I'm really gonna. That's gonna be awesome to take that Tesla uh, wine tasting around here in the valley. That I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So we're probably gonna need to talk about the supply chain. But today, let's talk about a bigger fear of mine, um, and that is public speaking. Brian, we have a very special guest. Brandon is joining us. Brandon, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, and feel free to tell us uh, about what you're up to and, and how you can help all of us with probably our greatest fear. Yeah, absolutely, Brian, Jeff. Such a pleasure to be here. So my name is Brandon Kwarasami. I'm the founder of MasterTalk. And MasterTalk is a YouTube channel I started to help the world master the art of communication and public speaking. And my mission in the world is I think the next Elon Musk is a seven-year-old girl who can't afford me. And when I saw those seven-year-olds, those 10-year-olds, those 15-year-olds who didn't have access to free communication knowledge, the ultimate goal behind what I do is how do I make communication so accessible that every human being in the world can become exceptional at this skill? Wow. And now you said every human being. That's a big statement. I've been around a lot of people that have given presentations, including myself, and I'm not sure any of us really enjoy it. So, and at least until it's over. And it, then when it's over, it's fantastic. Is there a way to get to love giving a presentation? Absolutely. So let's start at the basics, Brian and Jeff, is why are we all so scared of communication anyways? We have all these experts in the world that give us advice, but no one has answered the most important question, which is where does the fear of communication come from? And in my opinion, you don't need stats or a graph to figure this out. It's fairly simple. Let's think about this. Where have we given most of our presentations? And the answer is school and then work. But here's the problem with all those presentations. Number one, all of them are mandatory. We don't wake up one morning and say, hey, Brian, Jeff, you guys want to get breakfast and present all day? Says nobody. Mandatory. You don't wake up into class where somebody says, Brian, Jeff, what are you passionate about? What do you want to present? Do you want to talk about technology? No, that's not how the education system is designed. It's, wait a second. Hey, buddy. Yeah, you got to talk about Shakespeare. I'm just like, who's that? And then the Renaissance. So it's tied to being mandatory. Number two, every presentation changes. The best way to learn anything, whether you're coding in Python, whether you're learning a new instrument, is to do the same action repeatedly until you get a result. That matters. That We learn that in anything except communication. Because when you're in history class, you go to math. And then when you go to math, you go to science. And then you get to computer science and university, and you're still switching. Then when you're in corporate, all of your presentations are stressful at Google, and then you're switching presentations again. Not the best thing. And number three, every presentation is tied to a punishment. It's never, hey, Jeff, give this presentation. Let's cheer you on. No, it's, hey, by the way, Jeff, 
this is 20% of your grade. If you mess this up, you're going to get a zero and an F. And then when you get into corporate, Brian, don't forget that you should do well in this presentation. But in case you don't, that promotion you wanted, yeah, that's not going to happen. So we see communication. We're conditioned to believe as human beings that communication is a chore, not something that we like to do. And that is the big issues. How do we flip that switch? I can, I'm, I fully agree with you, Brandon. It's also the same for founders as well, right? If you don't get that pitch, especially when you're trying to start your first company and trying to get a bunch of angels, you know, agree to it, trying to explain to them a complex technology or walk down in Sandal Road and pitch them. The exact same problem because it's very conditional. So Brian, that's, that's interesting. So when you're pitching, are you pitching from a, 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 obviously you're pitching a deck, but are you pitching from a script or, or do you have your data and you're pitching to your data? In other words, when I would give a presentation, fortunately, I, I got to rely on a lot of data. So I, I just got to interpret the data. I literally never, ever had a script, um, never had to, cause I could just, but I lived with the data for weeks and months and then I, I could just unpack it. How, what's the role of a founder? Do you, did you have to memorize the script or you just talk about whatever technology piece you're, you're pitching at the time? So I think it depends on the pitch, uh, especially most pitches for venture capital or for fundraising. It's, it's called a 10 slide pitch. So you say like, what's the problem? What's the solution? You could go down the path of why are you so unique? Where are you positioned? The big market opportunity, the total addressable market, and then you keep on going down. And why are you the right company? And and how much money you need now for this round and, and what would you do with it? So that's the standard 10 slide deck uh, pitch. And a lot of times what happens is the first time founders who have not done this in, in the past will have a hard time. And that's why a lot of incubators and accelerators, they spend time on training people to, to do a deliver a good pitch. Lately, a lot of the pictures that I've seen have improved. But when I started in 2006, 2007, trying to raise money, I myself had a lot of fears in terms of going out and pitching. Well, I think our first meeting, I remember trying to raise money. I was still at Apple that was with um, Axel Capital down in Palo Alto in University Avenue. So I was sitting right in front of one of the partners and then started pitching and then I think at some point I froze a little bit, I stunted a little bit, and luckily my founders jumped in and we all, you know, pitched in, so it worked out really well. But but it takes a lot of effort, especially in the very beginning. But just I would I love that point that Brendan brought up. One of the problems in communication is this: you don't do it over and over again. Uh, luckily, what happens is like in the startup world, because you, you have to run a company for a few years, you get to pitch and pitch. So by the time right before the company got acquired, I still kept on pitching for various things, partnership, funding, whatever, next round. Eventually, I, I, I became so good at it, right? So there was this one meeting, I remember it was with, I think, Columbia Capital. I, I somewhat woke up like five minutes before the meeting and I was in my bed and I was, and, and I pitched to right. Those days you dial in and pitch so nobody can see your face. And I and the pitch went really well and they liked it. And then at that point, my, my wife now, but fiance then, she just rolled out of bed and said, how did you do that? And I'm like, this is my 400 or 500 pitch. Okay, but we don't want any of the students that might be listening to us to think we don't always come to the pitch completely prepared. That's a lot of years experience. So Brandon, that's really good. Maybe a, a tee off point. What are the do's and don'ts of a good? And, and what Brian touched upon it is so important, especially in the context of, of technology. And the reason, just to add more layer to the conversation, as to why these technical founders struggle so much with their pitch the first couple of times, which really led to master talk at the beginning, is when I was a venture capitalist in university, I was a part of a student-run fund, dorm room fund, but the equivalent of dorm room fund in uh, 
in the in the Canada, which was uh, the student run fund for real ventures. I realized that a lot of the technical founders were very early in the process, pre-seed. They were very good at developing products and technologies, but when it came to communicating those products and ideas in a way that someone who doesn't understand their tech stack can easily go, oh, that makes sense. They had a lot of trouble with that because they're too deep in the tech and it was really hard to pull them out of that. So when we go into the do's and don'ts, I would say the biggest do that nobody does is study the past to better explain the future. There's so many founders that I talk to and I just go, okay, what's your idea? They say the idea. I say, have you watched any of your competitors or anyone who was pitching a similar idea on how they pitch it? They almost always answer no. And I think that's absolutely crazy. I was like starting with the easiest wins first. The understanding the past is the best and easiest way for a founder to pitch the future. I'll give you a super easy example with this. When Reed Hastings started Netflix, and it was a DVD company at the time in the late 90s, early 2000s, it's a lot easier for somebody like Reed Hastings to pitch Netflix like this, which is, are you tired of waiting in line at Blockbuster, where you get late fees all the time, where all of the best movies are already rented out, and where you have to go all the way back, spend money, and not get a great experience, versus a system where you can really pick any movie you want. You don't have to leave your house and there's no late fees. It's a lot easier to take the past, explain the present. Whereas most founders focus too much on the future and they don't actually understand the past. Because as human beings, whether you're an investor, you're a customer, any stakeholder, everyone's tied to the past. That's what they're using. That's what they believe is the truth. And they don't believe in a better version of what they're already using. So you need to first explain the past, like how Steve Jobs explained the iPhone, you know, internet, phone, and music all in one device. But he also went on after he said that, hey, this is a BlackBerry, and this is why Blackberries are outdated, because they got physical keyboards, and that doesn't make sense in today's day and age, because it takes up 30% of the screen. So you're also explaining why the past doesn't make sense for the future. And that's the easiest thing founders can do is study their competition and just ask yourself a simple question. How can I use one thing from what they're pitching and reapply it into my own? What's really interesting about that is I would agree with that. One of the big mistakes I've seen in almost every startup that's pitching me as a retail analyst, a lot of them, if they're horizontal technology, they'll throw up the slide. And so I'm a retail guy. So what do we have in retail? We have things called uh, distribution centers and stores. What do you think the horizontal tech guy would put up on the screen to present to the retail guy? Central office, remote office, simple. Ta- tailor your message to the audience that that's want, wants to receive it. If you're a vertical, ten, take 10 seconds to verticalize your story. If you don't, it, you immediately tell the people, I don't respect you enough. And I don't know, that, that might be something to respect the audience. One of the other big mistakes that I've seen founders make with retail, especially with to retailers, is for some reason, the 20-something start a year old startup wants to insult a $4 trillion industry by saying, yeah, you guys are dumb. You don't really know what you're doing. Let me tell you how to do you know, this new way. And I was literally sitting with a couple of CIOs. Brian, actually, that might have been, that might have been at, at your event at, at, at NRF Tech when you guys did that sort of uh, round robin. And um, I was sitting with a couple of CIOs that I know very well. And the guy gets up and he, he, it was just like a two-second 
little throwaway to get into his pitch, but he just went and insulted a four trillion dollar industry. And two CIOs are, are yeah, CIOs I would see with just steam was coming out their ears because because it's just insulting. Oh, you, you guys really don't know what you're doing. You only feed and clothe the world. You only make you're only, you know. 50% of uh, or 70% of the, the U.S. economy, consumer spending, all that sort of stuff. So I think also one of maybe the most important things, you better respect your audience. If you don't, I, I, I just think that trying to be too sarcastic or smart alecky, it doesn't sit very well. Now, maybe that's an age thing, but it's to me, it's a respect thing. Absolutely. Completely agree with that. And I think if there's anything we can learn from founders in their 20s who have done exceptionally well, like Mark Zuckerberg or the Collison brothers at Stripe, is that we need to mature really quickly as executives, regardless of how old we are, so we can build allies, not enemies. Which brings us to the second most important do, which is the founder point of view. The most important part of a pitch is not all of the 10 slides in the deck, even if Brian was completely correct on that. That's how the standard pitch goes. The most important part of the pitch is how you answer questions at the end. Because what the venture capitalist is trying to figure out even if your thesis is correct on where you're going and how you're doing it, they're figuring out who is the person that we should be betting on for that thesis. Who is the person who has the deepest insight and knowledge in that industry? So going back to, I'm sure, a book that you've all recommended hundreds of millions of times on the show, Peter Thiel, Zero to One, what he argues in that book is what is the truth that you believe in that most people disagree with you on? In the context of a pitch, how that gets translated to is what are the points of view, the beliefs that you have about your industry that most people in your industry don't really understand as deeply as you do or fundamentally disagree with? And it's that point of view that you need to communicate frequently in the way that you communicate a pitch or an idea so that venture capitalists find you more compelling as a founder, as an individual, and then they buy into the company after. And that's what we've seen with pretty much every success story is they have a deep understanding of their industry, regardless of their age. Yeah, interesting. I fully agree with that thesis as well, Jeff, because I think what happens, especially I think the more and more in the early stages, this is even far more important because there is all the numbers, all the hockey sticks that you see are fake because every founder comes with that hockey stick. Hey, hey, I made some of those hockey sticks. <laughs> Slow down on that. Slow yeah, down on that. So as a GC, you are sitting on the other side, <laughs> just like Brendan said, you, know, you are essentially trying to figure out which horse, to, which founder to bet on, right? Which horse to bet on. Yeah, which yeah, which. which is this the right founder to bet on? Because you are essentially you are essentially putting all your these all your um, ideas and the thesis on, on on the given founders. In one is of course knowledge of the industry. The other is also his ability to adapt and move fast and get it executed. Which is yeah, I fully agree with that. I think that this is a really interesting point. One thing I've always been interested, in, um, Brandon, in, in your point of view on this is, and we used to see this at Gartner all the time with analysts that uh, be careful. I always say this. I wanted to show how smart they were. And these weren't necessarily informal presentations, but more in what we would call one-on-ones, where you're talking to a, a vendor or talking to somebody. And the sense was, hey, I'm really smart because I went to I went to here, I went to there. And fortunately, being a, a, a proud alum of California State University, Chico, I never had to try to brag about my alma mater, although Brian and I both are very proud Chico State grads. I found that just listening was always a better idea. And uh, I'm just curious what your thoughts on that is. If you've got 30 minutes to, to do a deal, do you, how do you come in? Do you come in saying, hey, I'm super smart because here's all my, my whatevers, or you just get in and say, no, how, how what's your professional advice on that? I love this piece of advice, that question rather, Jeff. So the way that I approach it 
is regardless of what the state is for the investors, for the stakeholders, you need to be bulletproof as much as possible as the founder. So here's a quick exercise that people can do that I teach my clients on that you can just implement. And I call it question drill. So let's say I'm sitting down with a Brian or an executive in tech. What we do first is we figure out what are all the possible questions that that investor is going to ask you. So we get a bunch of people who are really smart and they just grill you for an hour or two until you either have an answer to every question and or a slide on each answer. So you're prepped mentally for anything that could happen before you enter the room. That's one piece. The other piece is you definitely want to showcase the way that you communicate your ideas. But a lot of the times, unless you're a demo day and an accelerator, a lot of the pitching is not really formal anymore based on the people I talk to. It's more like you're both sitting at a coffee table or at a, in a boardroom somewhere and you're just explaining it with a laptop and it's a very informal conversation. So what I would encourage founders to start thinking about is make sure that it's very clear to the, fa- to the investors you're speaking to in the shortest amount of time that you have product market fit, that you have traction, and that you have a clear idea on where you're going. And then from there, make it a conversation. But at the same time, it's important to keep in mind that a lot of founders who are really successful are also very eccentric characters where they go, this is the way I need to go because that's the point of view I have as a founder. So how do you balance all of those things? I think for me, the key is if you know the answer to every question you're going to get asked on beforehand because you prep so much, you're going to be able to also practice answering your, the answers to the questions in a calm way. Because there's a big difference between saying the exact same information versus going version one, you don't know what you're talking about. This is actually the answer <laughs> versus, hey, Brian, I really like your point of view here, but here's another path to consider. But you can't do that, especially if you're a technical founder precede, if you don't prep before, because you don't have that experience to navigate those waters with people who have a lot more capital and, or I guess a bit older and not as susceptible to, to new ideas and change. If that, does that make sense? Yeah. So that's really interesting. That might explain why, what say as an analyst, when I'm, when I've been asked to have somebody give me a vendor briefing and a fair amount of players would come in and say, hey, we don't want to do the normal deck. Well, let's just have a conversation. And let me tell you, the last thing an analyst wants to hear is let's have a conversation. Hell no. You better be coming, presenting your ideas in a clear, concise, thought out uh, way and not just a random set of conversations. But that's probably because they're used to those, maybe those VC meetings where it is more, I don't know intimate might, might be the word, or, or you're actually trying to become a partner. Yeah. No vendor is a partner to an analyst. And we're not, we're, we're adversarial. Not that I'm necessarily looking to tear you up, but I am looking for weaknesses and I am looking for, is this something I want to pay attention to or not pay attention to? Do I trust this guy? Do I not trust this person? Can this person be a resource for me or nah, he's, he or she's full of, of nonsense. That's interesting. That probably explained, cause I used to get that I cannot tell you how many times, oh, we don't really want, want to just give you a formal presentation. Oh, yes, you do. You absolutely want to give me a formal presentation. One thought out because you only have a half hour and I'm not sitting down to become your, your next best friend. That's interesting. That probably explains. And so I guess that kind of gets sets up the scenario where you better understand what audience you're talking to. And what's the appropriate communication vector in that audience? Great points about founders. Now let's talk about retail executives that have, that are going to give a presentation one or two times a year at an end user conference. They're a multi-million dollar player for a you know, software provider. Somehow they twist that, the arm to get that executive to come to a conference. Probably don't 
do a lot of public speaking. What's your advice for those people? Because I have seen horrible presentations from these folks. Absolutely. So here's a tip that applies to both retail execs and founders. That is the easiest trick in the book. If you just apply that from this 30-minute conversation that we're having, you're easily going to get results. All my clients get them in a week. So the puzzle, sorry, the framework is called puzzle. As kids, we used to play with jigsaw puzzles. So it's a little mm. toy puzzle. So if I asked both you and, and Brian a simple question, it's not a trick question, is if you're working on a jigsaw puzzle, which pieces would you start with first and why? The corner. I assume a corner. Absolutely. The, the, whatever, the corner and then build out from our front. Oh, the edges. Yeah, yeah. Right, the edges. And what's the rationale? It's defined. You have two corners. So you've got, what, 25% of the, the base to work from. You're both absolutely right. The corners are the best place to start because the edge, you see the edge piece. So they're easier to find your work your way into the middle. Mm -hmm. That's how most people I know do puzzles. But in public speaking, we do the opposite. We start with the middle first. So let's say we're in a conversation with the founder, with the retail executive that has to present next week at a conference. What do they do? They shove a bunch of content. They get to the presentation and it sounds something like this. Hi, everyone. I hope you're all having a great day. Blah, blah. They ramble through the whole thing. And then the last slide sounds something like this. Yeah, so thanks. And that's how most founders and most retail execs present. So is there a better, if you implement puzzle, you'll be a lot more effective at presentations which is simply start with the edges first. Present your introduction 50 times, not three times, not five times. Do it 50 times. 50 seems like a big number, really isn't, because your intros may be a minute or two. It'll take you an hour to get this done. Same thing with the conclusion. What's a great movie with a terrible ending? Last time I checked, terrible movie, right? Same thing for the ending, 50 times the end and then build up the confidence to hit the middle. But here's the magic with the way you practice like this, is you're not just rambling throughout the whole thing all the time and wasting time in your practice. You're building momentum and saying, oh, wow, that's the best introduction I ever gave in my life. Oh, that was the best ending. But then with the middle, last time I checked, once again, if you're doing a thousand piece puzzle, you probably aren't doing that puzzle alone. Because if you're doing that puzzle alone, it's really daunting. Got to spend all these hours. Yet that's how most of us do presentations. Whether you're a founder or retail exec, the image that we have in our head is you're somebody in your basement in the dark putting slides together. And that's the worst way to practice. I'm not saying you necessarily need a coach. Unless you're an executive, you can afford one. But if you're like a founder and you can't afford one, what I always say is have a bunch of buddies and just practice your pitches with each other. Ask each other questions. Have fun with it. And that's how you master the public speaking puzzle. Interesting. I love that. I, one of the big mistakes I've always seen retailers make is um, basically doing a 20-minute discussion on the number of stores and the color scheme of the stores and four different maps of where the stores are. And the sole reason is they're, they're running the clock out. They literally don't want to say anything. And they're afraid to say anything. And that's maybe the bigger issue. Most of my, you always had the sense that you're taking your job in your hands when you're going up on stage. Yeah, whether it was right or wrong. Yeah, as long as you didn't say anything stupid. I'm not sure that's true quite as much today. I think you are risking a little bit more if you go up and say something offhanded, which probably goes to the point, maybe we shouldn't be saying anything offhanded when the mic is open. But it's awfully interesting, Jeff, just to insert one quick point, right? Like in the, like you said, it like before all these crazy digital transformation, innovation, all these pressures started, mounting on retail and traditional company executives. If you don't say anything wrong or anything, like you said, stupid, you are okay. But today in a world, innovate or die. If you don't say 
that you're in a waiting or at least if you don't, if you're not willing to cover it, then you lost the opportunity and it becomes a mega loss. That session is essentially you're immediately viewed as a non-innovator. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, Brian. And that's why, hence the name This Week in Innovation, because we, I've been begging retailers for 20 years to to be viewed as innovative or at least try. And that's why, you know, the, the folks from Ulta that I just love having on because they're so gracious with their time. They're so gracious with what they're talking about. And they want to be viewed as innovative along the lines of Amazon or, or Walmart. And boy, that's the best advice I could give to retailers going forward is I think Wall Street's going to begin to not, I, I think I know Wall Street is already evaluating you on, on based on your innovative capabilities. And the best way to claim that space is to actually talk like you are an innovator. And so hopefully we'll see uh, much better presentations going forward. I see more retailers, executives getting out there. I just don't see them doing it all that successfully. And I, uh, Brandon, I love what you're saying there. I think that's really great stuff. Or can an executive be successful without being a good presenter? Absolutely, Jeff. So, so here's the way I think about this. I know a lot of technical people who do really well in their career. They can go up to VP. They can be directors. I think the question that we need to start thinking about our, with ourselves and the bigger idea here is, are you happy in that role? Because a lot of the directors and VPs I talk to who aren't great communicators, they're struggling in that role. Because as you go up, and let me paint a picture here, you're getting started as a developer or an analyst, someone at the beginning, you're mostly coding, you're doing a lot of those deliverables. And then as you mature as an executive and you go to man, you're not doing the deliverables anymore. Now you're a people manager, you're managing people. And as you go up the ladder, the number of meetings that you get called into every day increases dramatically. Because at the beginning of your career, you have one lane, you master that lane, you get really good at that lane, and that's what gets you promoted. But then as you get to the next level, you get promoted on EQ. It's your ability to manage five different engineers, five different individuals, and making sure they're all doing their work and they're getting it done, they're motivated, they're inspired. So even if they're still getting promoted, because frankly, there's not a lot of people and there's like a huge talent need in that area. So they need to promote up a lot of these people, frankly, and you both know that well, is that now they're, they're getting those promotions, but they're stressed out in those promotions. Like I know somebody who's a senior product person in Amazon in New York City is struggling because they've got the promotion because they're saying, okay, now what? No. So here's the way I think about it. And this is probably something everyone should write down. If you are just 20% better as a communicator than everyone else in your role, you will stand out 100% of the time. Let me repeat that again. If you communicate just 20% better than everyone else in your industry in that role, you will stand out 100% of the time. Why is that? Because the person who's an SVP or C-suite executive, even some of them don't communicate that either, they're going to look back at you and say, wow, this person is a really good communicator. You'll stand out because the only difference when you get to manager to get up is just communication because all of them are supremely good at delivering a result. Now it's just about how good are you at managing people and do people leave not just informed, but more importantly, inspired when you give them feedback and when you have conversations with them. So yeah, bottom line, you can get promoted, but you'll struggle. Yeah, really interesting points. What do you do when you make a big mistake in a presentation? So the way, so it depends on the context of the mistake. So if the mistake is gargantuous, like a hundred million dollar loss or something really big, you want to always reassess and say, okay, what is the process and how I prepare for that presentation? 
And a big mistake I see most executives make where, where the deal is multiple millions, multiple eight figures, is they're not doing question drills. They're not grilling each other and waiting for the client to do that for them, which I think is ridiculous. Like you want to make sure that when you go into an orals process, which is the most common, I would say pricing mistake, when you're up against, you know, let's say you work at AWS and you're up against the other cloud providers and you're pitching your cloud service. And that's like a very big contract, but you're not preparing yourself enough for that presentation. That's an example of a costly mistake you can make in the boardroom. You want to make sure that your mate, every single person on the team is prepped with every answer they could possibly get asked about the products and services or any client objection or concern that they could ask. And then if you're able to fill in those gaps, you're able to be successful. But let's explain the other situation that you had touched on, Jeff. Let's say you make the mistake. What do you do? I think the biggest, the easiest thing that would apply in the vast majority of situations is if the mistake is big enough, acknowledge it. And if the mistake is small enough where the client or the people won't know the difference, laugh it off and keep going. Because there's also a point about how you mirror. The way I think about it, speakers are mirrors. We reflect our own emotions onto the people we speak to. If we look stressed, if we don't look like we don't know what we're saying or what we're talking about, the other people on the other line are going to say, oh, should I be worried? But if the person is just going, well, Brian, Jeff, I'm just answering question. Let's keep the ball rolling. Then everyone else is going to feel safe in that conversation. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I've fallen off stage before. And the best thing you could do is jump back up, have a big laugh and keep on going. And if you can survive that mistake and then honesty and admit it, it if you get lost or whatever, you laugh. If you, this is where you got to either be crazy or confident or both. If you can laugh at your mistake, you have the audience in the palm of your hands and everyone is cheerleading for you. I've seen presenter, a presenter once, probably the best I've ever seen. The power actually went out on the stage. And he lost his deck and he, and he laughed and he just kept going and he had the, he didn't get the content out that he wanted because the slides were really complex and they were data centric, but oh my gosh, uh, unbelievable. So acknowledge your mistake, laugh about it and then go forward and then correct it and then go forward. Hey, um, Brandon, in wrapping up, what should everyone be thinking about how to get better in doing this? What are the takeaways that everyone should be doing today? And then how do we get a hold of you? Absolutely, everyone. So I would say the top three tips that I have at the end of the day is number one, don't reinvent the wheel. If you're a founder of a company, you're an executive in a retail business, go look at the people that are already doing well in that business and invest an hour of your week, not 10 hours, not 100, one hour of your week just to watch how other people are pitching your idea and learn from them. Have some humility. Look at the lessons that you can learn and reapply it into what you're doing. Number two is have a strong point of view about your business if you're a founder or about your message if you're a retail executive, because it's through a strong point of view that you're able to communicate something unique and build executive eminence or personal brand, depending on which lane that you're in. And the best way to do that is question drills. So if somebody like Brian or Jeff is just asking really hard questions about your business for two hours... What happens is it really helps you defend your point of view and also helps you reflect on, hey, these are the things I need to be focusing on and this is the direction I need to go in as the founder of this organization. And then the third piece is don't do this alone. Work with other people who are in the same class as you. If you're in Y Combinator in a badge, work with other people in the badge. Don't be competitive, be collaborative. That's the best way to improve a pitch. Because even somebody who's in an industry that's not your own can give you an insight on your ideas 
and what you're doing that you wouldn't have thought of yourself. Oh, and then to get hold of me. The YouTube channel is called Master Talk in One Word. And if you want to also get free coaching, I do two workshops a month for the community. So if you want to access, that's rockstarcommunicator.com backslash workshop. That was just fantastic. And I can't recommend that your YouTube channel enough. And the quality is off the charts and the content is, is through the roof. Where were you 30 years ago, young man? Where were you 30 years ago? You could have... <laughs> literally changed my whole direction. I might have not too late, Jeff. <laughs> I'm your worst case there. I, I do everything wrong and all the, and, and still, uh, still get it done. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks again for, uh, for everything. And uh, we'll look forward to ongoing conversations. Yeah, and thanks, Brandon, as well. This has this been an awesome session. Thank you for all the valuable tips. Uh, I'm sure it's super helpful to our listeners. Likewise, such a pleasure to be on YouTube. Likewise, take care. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. For more info, refer to the pod notes below. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating and review. It really helps us grow. I'm your host, Jeff Roster, analyst at large. If you want to connect, follow us on Twitter at JeffPR or at Brian Sathanation, or connect with us on LinkedIn. Visit my website at roster.retail.com or brians at Until next time, stay safe and have a great week.